0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times— to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com/worthit.
2: Hi, I'm Emery, and welcome back to the Wannabe Podcast, the podcast that takes you from where you are now to where you want to be in thirty minutes or less i going to say a massive thank you for listening, and we're going to go straight in. Today, I'm joined by BAFTA award-winning director, Amma Asante. Amma started out as an actress, and in 2004, Amma's directorial debut film, A Way of Life, premiered in the Toronto Film Festival, and Amma won 17 international awards. At the 2005 BAFTA Film Awards, Amma received the BAFTA Carl Foreman Award for Special Achievement by a writer director Emma's films include Belle, *A United Kingdom*, and *Where Hands Touch* with Amanda Stenberg. In today's episode, Emma shares her experience of trying to be an actor as a teenager in the eighties. You'll learn about the constant rejection she faced at school and the importance of sisterhood. You'll learn why the pressure of representation might be what holds you back. Enjoy. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Really good. Who did you want to be before you became who you are today, and why?
3: So who did I want to be? I'll tell you the interesting thing. At the end of my emails, I've got a quote by Sidney Poitier um, and I'm paraphrasing it. And he says, um, no route had been established for where I was hoping to go. And the reason why I have that at the end of my emails is because um, I knew I wanted to go somewhere, but I hadn't yet found the person Mm -hmm. or the people that were going in the direction that I wanted to go. And the reason why I say that is because there wasn't any internet, there wasn't any social media, there was no way for me to be able to reach across ponds or um, even into um, other communities that were a little bit further away than I was to really be able to connect with um, that many people who were kind of in the end Mm -hmm. um, doing what it is I now know I wanted to do, which is to direct um, and to write. And I say I now know because I think it was a subconscious thing. It was a subconscious thing that was driving me. So I think as a kid, I was quite lost Yeah. um, in terms of who I wanted to be and um, where I could find um, an idol, if you like, or role model um, that I could um, measure my exact self against.
2: I remember it being... A struggle for me to find people to look up to, but there were Mm -hmm. people. So I think my earliest memories were people like June Sarpong and Angelica Bell. But that they weren't doing what I wanted to do. But those were kind of the most prominent figures for
3: me. Yeah, they and exactly you have to remember June's even a little bit younger than me. Yeah. So so you think about you know how long ago really it was for me, and eventually later. Um, when my mum started to get subscriptions to magazines like Ebony magazine mm-hmm. and um, later on after that Essence magazine before that there was Jet we we used to get the odd um, edition of Jet magazine um, and I could and I found women who looked like Looked like they were um, fitting into the kind of world I wanted to fit into.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: I loved to see um, women in tailored suits. I loved to see women who were professionals. I loved to see women who um, looked like they were going out to work every single day. And that's not that I. That's not to say that I didn't have it in the UK. Obviously, I had my mum, I had my big sister, I had aunts, uncles, and lots of other members of the community who were doing that. But to sit down in my spare time and actually be able to kind of meditate over these images and you know flick pages and go through these images um for a while I had to look to um to America to sort of be able to find those those magazines and yet I was really desperate to find the that the British counterpart yeah to that you know growing up so that it was exactly like me um and and yeah it was a little bit tough it was a little bit tough and thankfully it's it's not so much anymore at all
2: yeah I think I can definitely like relate to some of that sentiment, but then I do compared to how you're explaining it, I feel almost there's a lot of privilege that I had growing up when I did, and even more so for my younger sister who just turned eighteen, and that's yes, a yeah, lot to it, deal it it a it lot really is steps an
3: entirely different world. I think now, and again, I I will qualify that by saying we've still got a long way to go. Absolutely, um, but you know, living in that environment. Um, I don't think I realized just how much of a deficit Mm -hmm. there was um, in um, role models. And not because the people who had the talent to be role models didn't exist. It was where was their exposure? Where Mm -hmm. were they being platformed? How could I connect to them as a little girl and find them and see them? Not because they didn't exist. Not because we as um, a set of communities didn't have the talent within us it's just where, where how could I connect to them where could I find them yeah. so unless it was literally from your own family or your own um slightly wider circle it was it was
2: tough yeah I can imagine so what did you do
3: it's interesting so when I was when I was 10 yeah, um, my, because of something not so wonderful that happened to me at dance school, uh, where I was that only black kid. Uh, because I had a sort of slightly uncomfortable racist incident where mm-hmm. um, I was uh, not allowed to partake in the school show because mm-hmm. uh, because I was I was black, um, and that was a, so. When I say school show, it was it after? It, it was an after-school dance class, so it was that that show. Um, my father um, was really distressed on hearing that my mother had um, finished work early, travelled all the way across London um, to come and see me in my dance class show, and then I'd not appeared in it. And when I told her why, she had then gone and told my father, and he was so furious that he decided he was going to do something about it. He realised that I was creative and that um, Somehow he understood that I desperately needed a creative outlet, even though I didn't, I don't remember expressing it to him in any way. Yeah. Um, and he did this really unusual thing. He started looking for um, a school that I could go to where I would learn formal subjects, maths, English, geography, all of that, but also where I could um, be nurtured in terms of my creativity. And mm-hmm. he came across a school in East Acton. He came across a few schools, actually, um, that, that did dance and drama alongside formal education. But he specifically came across um, Barbara Speak, which is a stage school that I went to in East Acton. And the reason why he connected with it um, quite strongly was because it really had quite a, a good um, percentage of um, black kids um, mm. going to it. And he wanted me to be able to go to a school where I wouldn't feel isolated yeah. in that way, in the way that I had at that, at that dance class. Um, and so at the age of 10, I ended up going to uh, joining this stage school. And um, my school friends were people like um, Michelle Gale, Kwame Kwayama, um Naomi Campbell. Um, That's
2: a really lots good of people. class.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so we weren't all in the same class. Myself and Naomi were in the same class. Um, and I have other school friends from that class that I'm still friends with today. Michelle Gale was a year younger than me. Ah, oh, she'll be so glad I've said that on air. <laughs> um, uh, Kwame Ma Kwame was a little bit older than me. So we had, there was a little, um, what's the word, a grouping of us that have all kind of stayed in the industry and gone on to do our own thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but you have to remember, you know, Kwame wasn't Kwame then, Naomi wasn't Naomi then, Amma yeah, wasn't Amma then. We were just kids going to school and, um, you know, trying to, trying to get on with our formal subjects, as I say, and really trying to enjoy um, the creative aspects of what the school taught as well. So that that was the first way that I really um, was able to harness my, my creativity. And I was very, very shy as well. That was the other reason why my dad sent me to stage school was to hopefully try and bring me out of myself a little bit as well. Did it work? Yeah, scarily it did. Um, why was that so- scary? <laughs> Because, you know, stage schools can be quite scary places. And again, probably not uh, for young people today. Um, But for me coming from Streatham, um, I came from a relatively loud family. That Mm -hmm. was probably a good start. That was probably a good thing. We loved music. We loved singing. We loved dancing. There was always singing and dancing going on in the family. Um, But there is something very um, worldly about stage school um, because these kids often have started working already. Mm -hmm. Um, Stage schools are often attached to acting agencies as well, which means they put you out to work. And so these kids have often started working. They've often started earning money. They've often um, mixed, um, uh, been part of the industry um, long before you might imagine They would be. So some have started from the age of five, have started working in um, adverts on on stage in the West End, you know, all of that. And so um, so they were very worldly. I found stage school very worldly. And then about four years after that, I started on Grange Hill. um, And that was that took it a stage further.
2: I loved Grange Hill, by
3: the way. (laughs) Well, so did I. I mean, and that was a thing as well. You know, I was a kid that watched the TV show and then suddenly I was on it so cool um and that was that was more frightening than cool for me but it, it again it took it a stage further in terms of what felt like worldliness to my my 14 year old self so through all of that i was really managing to kind of um harness but also nurture the the creativity that was in me and so um that was a great thing and also meet other people like me who wanted to do the same thing and that was something i hadn't had access to until then
2: It sounds like a really nice turning point actually so yeah you it was you go to a different environment and I think often we forget that environments really do have a massive impact especially when you're a young person of color um and you're the only one like the experience can be so daunting whether it's kind of positive or negative I think it's so important to see yourself represented even in your peers and so I'm so glad that that kind of happened for you and it kind of changed the trajectory of
3: what you were doing
2: and that's
3: totally did totally did and I'm sort of really often really proud of my my um dad that he took that decision and really proud of my mum for agreeing with it and supporting him in that because obviously it made a difference to her life as well suddenly they were I'm working to pay school fees um, mm. that they hadn't been before, and that made you know quite a huge difference to to their lives in terms of their their output financially. Um, so I'm really glad that um, I'm proud of them that they that a that they had the foresight to make that choice, but then really stuck with it, and definitely, as you say, changed the trajectory of my life.
2: Yeah, so. You're now in this stage school, everyone's kind of like really creative and they're out there and they, they've been working and getting jobs and getting paid. And you're still mm. like, this is still kind of England in like the 70s and 80s. I'm so, yeah. like, well, roughly the 80s at this point. Mm. And so mm. I remember my mum my came to the UK in the early 80s mm-hmm, and she still mm-hmm. had to deal with like a lot of like quite horrendous uh, racism in the school system. Yeah personally but also like the struggle to like access certain parts of education but also access like jobs and things like that and you land on Grange Hill like what was the process of auditioning and actually going for roles, was that still quite difficult for yeah, you? Yeah, I
3: mean, it, it was still quite difficult. First of all, my brother is um, almost a decade older than me. So uh, when I was 10, you know, my brother was um, just touching his 20s and uh, he's a biochemist and I, I can remember his process after he graduated as a biochemist mm-hmm. um, of, of simply trying to get work. I can remember that whole thing of, you know, people hearing his voice on the phone and versus uh, what would happen when he would go for... Ju- at actual job interviews and, mm-hmm. and people would would see him I can still remember my mum coming home um a, a couple of times with spit on her back wow. from the bus stop um I can I can still remember um you know racist you know think events if you like taking place in the supermarket at the bus stop she's doing normal things like you know going shopping I, I um I, I can remember terrible things still happening you know in our street like you know not so nice stuff coming through the letterbox yeah and, that kind of thing. So I can still remember all of that. And it definitely, you know, looking back at the time, that's just your world. Mm -hmm. That is just your world. It's not like, oh, woe is me. This is terrible. It's just what it is. Yeah. Looking back now, I'm horrified. I'm absolutely horrified. So I go to, um, stage school and, um, at this point, you know, um, I do get a tiny, tiny part in, um, Um, I think it was a Weetabix commercial but generally I'm not working Mm -hmm. and we have this ritual every evening at school every just before school closes where we have what we call um, evening assembly and that's where the whole school gathers and then the headmistress or her deputy would call out um, the names of all the children who got work for the next day or auditions for the next day. And they'd get a little slip of paper and it would give them the details of what that job was or what that audition was. And I remember I used to pray every single evening just before school finished um, or every single late afternoon that I would I would get one of those jobs and I never did you know t- mm. you know evening after evening and you know it was very clear if you were very blonde if you were very blue-eyed those were the kids who were just working non-stop non-stop and so you be- you know we became very aware of it very very early in life and um, and you know at the time when I told my mother what
0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
3: It happened to me at that evening stage school. I told her, but I hadn't quite grasped it myself. Yeah. By this stage, I'm really starting to understand how the world around me is working. And it's really quite quite tough to deal with, but you also, you don't have any choice. So, uh, so what happened, interestingly enough, and this speaks to context and your surroundings again, is that, um Michelle Gell had gone for um, the audition for the part that I eventually got on Grange Hill. And I think she'd had a couple of auditions for it and hadn't got it. And she'd come to my class one day um, and asked the teacher if she could have a quick word with me. And she was allowed to. And she came to me and she said really really fast and I don't know if she'll even remember this I've been for this <laughs> audition at chill and I've been a couple of times and I didn't get the job and this is what they're looking for because they're going to be asking for you they're going to be calling you to come in for the audition and she'd given me a really fast lowdown on the part and I went for the audition I finally got called and I went for the audition um, a few days later and be- I still say because of her yeah because of what she whispered in my ear I went for one audition which I think was pretty much unheard of on chill and I got the job
0: oh um, well
3: done <laughs> Yeah. I think that, you know, obviously they were specifically looking for, um, a black actress to play a black character. We were going to be two sisters. My, the girl who played my sister, Alison McGoughlin, who I'm still in touch with, um, and myself were, were playing the part of two sisters whose father had died and, um, who was struggling kind of to, um, survive in an environment, um, that was difficult for us with a, a little brother. And so, Yeah, it made, obviously it made it easier that um, it it was a part that had a colour attached to it already. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, definitely with my shyness made it easier that Michelle uh, gave me the rundown, basically, on on, on what they were looking for. So it was, it was pretty quick. It was a quick turnaround between me going for the audition and then eventually starting life as a, as a full-time actress on that
2: show. I mean, that's so exciting. And uh, like, that must have been so much fun uh, to do. And I guess like a different kind of experience, because that's like essentially your like first, like big job. First
3: job. Yeah. Uh, it's first big yeah. job. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, So in that story, I really wanted to touch on something that I guess a lot of people might be experiencing now. And that's kind of like how you dealt with the disappointment of not being all of those times? Was there any kind of specific coping mechanism that you had in that, you, that you remember? Or were you very much like, I'm just really devastated every single time?
3: I think it was devastating. Let me be honest with you. I yeah. think it was completely devastating. When you're 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, things feel devastating.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it was really, it's really interesting because some of your listeners might have um, read or heard a quote that, um I'm quoted on often which is saying you know for me no uh when it comes to my work when it comes to um the selling of my projects the touting of my projects no is not a full stop for me it's a comma yeah and it's it's a moment to okay reassess things and and work out how to move forward and I think I had to learn that I had no choice but to learn that from my my um early period as a very very young uh first wanna be actress and then actress, um that uh that rejection was a big part of the industry. Yeah. Um that I, if I was choosing to be in this industry, that I was gonna have to face. And um and it, I was gonna have to face it number one, whatever colour I was,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and number two, even more so as a person of colour. And three, I learned very early, even more so as a woman of colour. There were just so few of us, if any at all, on screen at that time. And I, I just understood at a very early age how, how hard that was. We, it, You know, we weren't in ads, commercials. We weren't um, in um, TV shows at the time. You know, growing up, there was Love Thy Neighbour, um, which if anybody's ever seen reruns of Love Thy Neighbour, you'll know. You know, you'll know that show well. And um, uh, my cousin, Christopher Asante, um, who sadly passed away some years ago, was on a show called Mind Your Language at the time. Um, and I'm sure there were maybe a, one or two other black people, but to the best of my knowledge, you know, those, those are the people that, that I can remember. And, of course, Floella Benjamin. Oh, yes, um, I
2: remember
3: her. You know, was on was on Play School and Play Away at the time. But, but th- they were they were mostly visible because they were the exceptions that proved the rule Yeah, in many ways. And so I had to really, um, eventually build a very, very tough exterior, um, a really tough skin to be able to cope with the, the rejection and learn, actually, um, you, you got to get up. It's, it's, it's not about the rejection. It's about how quickly you get up. And although that's a cliche, all those platitudes and cliches come into play. Yeah. Um, when you're surrounded, you're, A, you're in a competitive environment, but secondly, you're not playing on a level playing field. Yeah. By the time I got onto Grange Hill, I really understood the impact that my being as a black person and as a black woman had on screen. Mm-hmm. I realised the impact um, that my being there on screen had on other girls like me. Yeah. I knew it made a difference and that that made me want to continue to do it.
2: Yeah, that must be uh, so palpable as well, like, but that must also feel like such a huge responsibility as well.
3: Yes and no, because I didn't feel it in the, you know, I I didn't, the word representation had not reached my vocabulary. Okay. So I didn't feel like I was representing um, in any way and I didn't even feel it as a pressure. I just, I I just felt it mattered. Yeah. That's all I knew was that it, it, it mattered. And somewhere inside me I knew it made a difference, but I hadn't found a word a way to kind of voc- vocabularize that either in any way or vocalise that. I didn't know what word to put on it. And first series um, that I wrote and co-created, I think we had something like 27 black characters in it.
1: Wow. And one of the reasons
3: why we had 27 black characters was because I wanted to express, express the plethora of of kinds of characters and individuals that we might be and so because I wanted to be able to represent a range of black people you know we couldn't we couldn't limit it to just five or ten yeah um, or two families I think we had something like four or five or even six families in that one series because I wanted to be able to express different kinds of relationships different kind of love mm-hmm. uh, you know different kind of sibling relationships all of that mattered to, to me again not with this word representation kind of heavily on my mind, but just, you know, naturally built into me that, wow, we've been so starved of seeing ourselves on screen. Now I've got this opportunity. Let me, let me show as many different ways in which we exist as possible, you know?
2: Yeah. That's such a beautiful thing because it's, it comes naturally to you to do that um, as opposed to feeling forced or like this, this weight is on you. And I think that's the kind of the most authentic and organic, like because it's so organic, it's more authentic that way. Cause you can tell, like, I think we all can tell when someone's like you really (laughs) try really hard to represent everyone. And then almost you can teeter on caricatures when it's just too forced. So um, there's definitely been examples. I'm not calling anyone out, but it can go the other way. So I quite, I quite like that you, it came from a place of, I'm not trying to represent everyone, but I'm, I'm doing it because these are the people I see in and around me. In my life. Yeah. In my life. These are the
3: people that I know exist. And you know, the truth of it is that, you know, real freedom, you know, when real equality and true freedom is going to come to us uh, as people of color, as black women, as black people, um, as artists, when we have the same freedom to create Mm -hmm. as a white men, Um, you know, white men do not have the burden of representation in the way they're not expected in the way um, that we are, particularly as black women, when we're delivering product Mm -hmm. um, to get it right, get it perfect, represent all of us, you know, and if you don't, you know you you yourself as a black female or anti-black yeah or, or, or anti anti-black woman or you're anti this and actually you no, know, all you're trying to do is be creative and be an artist and actually create a body of work which often takes a lifetime yes you know to to achieve to, you know who you are you know I don't think for instance the work that I've done so far in any way <laughs> expresses Um, who I am I hope that once I'm dead when you look back on my body of work of which I hope there'll be much much more I hope that that will be the body of work that expresses who I am but unfortunately unfortunately it takes time we have to recreate something and then we have to kind of hold back in and build ourselves and um, you know and then recreate something else and actually when we when we don't put that pressure on each other what we're able to deliver are real gifts, I think, to our communities and to the world, because we're doing it in the purest way. And when we're doing it under the pressure of you should, you must.
2: Oh, I love that. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to let you go soon. I just wanted to ask you finally, what the worst advice you've ever received was, and what the best advice you've ever received was.
3: Oh, my goodness. No pressure. (laughs) I think the worst advice I've ever received is anything. Having just given you loads of advice that starts with don't, <laughs> I'm gonna say the worst advice I think is 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 any general advice that starts with you can't or don't try. Mm. Anything that starts with you can't or don't try, um I'm, I'm already side-eyeing. <laughs> I'm already side-eyeing, thinking, ooh, you're applying your limitations to me. That's really interesting. Um, and the best piece of advice I've ever been given if is anything that actually starts with you can. Yeah. And why not give it a try anything that starts with why not give it a try or anything that starts with you can I think anything that empowers me um, is usually advice that I try my hardest to hold on to although you know naturally I think we program ourselves often to hold on to anything that tells us we can't or we shouldn't or do better or you didn't do good enough you know we're sort of programmed to hold on to the negative stuff i've been working since i was 15 um on really training myself to allow the positive stuff to seep in and and that's not to be um narcissistic or um but i'm living in a in a world and working in an industry where frankly I'm at the bottom of the food chain and as a black female I mean yeah and so it's not anybody who's going to put more obstacles in front of me than actually genuinely already exist yeah isn't useful for me and so I kind of avoid them (laughs) like (laughs) the plague and anything they've got to say or offer not um like like the plague Um, and anybody that I think is about um helping to encourage me and um allowing me to find new tools um to negotiate what can often be a very rocky bumpy path for me yeah um my my best advice I, I think I was ever I have ever been given was just the my dad's regular mantra, which was just simply everything's gonna be okay.
2: Oh, that's nice. That's reassuring. Mm. Sometimes the simplest and, you know, advice is the best advice.
3: Sometimes it is really sim- uh, the simplest advice is the nicest. And for me, you know, when my dad used to say that, I believed him. I mm. believed him. And it didn't matter then sometimes when things weren't okay, I didn't worry about them. Until they weren't okay anymore. I felt okay until things weren't okay. And usually they were temporarily not okay. Yeah. You know, it was not, never a permanent thing. Everything's going to be okay. is something that I remember. And I I still hear his, his voice. Um, and it's really interesting because since he's passed away, my mum started to say it and she says it in exactly the way he says (laughs) it. And, and I feel the same when she says it, you know, I, I, I believe her. Um, and so even when you get it wrong you know there's still always the opportunity eventually eventually to get it right it may not be with that specific example you you know you may have to go on and 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 make things right with a different example with a different set of circumstances but in the end everything's usually okay
2: yeah um, but yeah, no, this has been perfect. Thank you again so much. Great. Um, All right, thank
3: you, Sound Guy. I didn't get your name, but thank you, FA. FA, thank you.
2: Do you agree that true equality will come when artists can create without the burden of representation? Let us know via our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Wannabe Podcast. To find out more about Amma, you can follow her on Twitter. At Ama Asante, that's A And you can find out more about her work by visiting her website, AmaAsante.com. Priska will be back next week, so please make sure you get your questions in before this Sunday. So just send them to WB at shoutoutnetwork.co.uk or visit wannabepodcast.com and select Ask a Question. This podcast is created by the Shoutout Network. To find out more, visit shoutoutnetwork.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please do remember to leave a review on iTunes. And to get extended show notes listing all of the tools, resources, and more about Emma's work, visit wannabepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.